and I was just not very thrilled to be in a lab slicing mouse brains. Um, a honeybee col colony, it's considered a superorganism. Together, the whole superorganism has these emerging properties of the superorganism that are higher level than what they would be for the individuals in the, the colony. Hi, my name is Erfan Vafai with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. Welcome to Talking Bugs, a podcast about entomologists and their research. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Juliana Rangel, an associate professor at Texas A&M University. She runs the Honeybee Lab at Texas A&M University, which can be found at honeybeelab.tamu.edu. They hold annual trainings and provide resources to help beekeepers. Dr. Rangel has published over 69 research items with 691 citations and 11,247 reads of her works, according to ResearchGate. Her research is mostly related to pollinator and bee health. I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. Uh, so I can see you are obviously working from home as well. So how is this How's this whole thing you were mentioning a little bit earlier that I guess you're kind of used to working from home now for a little while? Yeah, so uh, I was telling you earlier that um, I have a seven-month-old baby. So in the fall, toward the end, I was on maternity leave. And then this spring, I was on sabbatical leave or what they call here faculty development leave. Um, and so we were gone for the month of February. And part of early March, we were in Australia oh, visiting nice. a collaborator when this whole pandemic thing was uh, kind of exploding in China, mostly. And Ooh. very little was um, heard in the news about in any other places, maybe one or two countries in Europe. Uh, Italy was kind of getting started with their big issues but so it was surreal to be there and go through that part of the pandemic when we were so far away and uh and you, you were in australia in around february then or when, when all of february and oh part gosh. of march yeah oh, wow yeah and then we got back before they put uh all the travel restrictions yeah um, so we just oh made gosh. it back in time and we quarantined ourselves and so I think that would uh, so, have been just, just before Tom Hanks was quarantined, I think, in Australia. Yes, that's days. right. It was <laughs> exactly, yeah, just, just before. Just missed them. Uh, just missed them. Just missed them, yeah. Um, uh, so it's, it's been now over six months of working from home, um, and it's been interesting. Of course, I have to juggle the family life, the home life, Luckily, I have a very supportive um, spouse, but he can only, you know, take the do kids. Do so much. <laughs> and do so yeah. much. Um, so uh, I've actually, all things considered, I've enjoyed my time at home because I get to interact with my family more than I used to. So there's trade-offs, and um, we now can. Um, conduct some research um, at our lab. And so I've been going to our 
field laboratory couple of days a week so it's kind of breaking the the quarantine um, monotony of monotony of, of being <laughs> home stuck at yeah. home all the time yeah um, exactly so, yeah. And so and you started, so you started by doing your bachelor's of science in university of California, San Diego in ecology, behavior and evolution. Did you already have a specific career goal in mind when you were doing the undergraduate degree? Um, not precisely when I started. Um, I, uh, migrated to the U S uh, right after high school. I grew up in Colombia, South America. And, um, I had actually, I lied. I did a couple of semesters at the university after graduation uh, in Colombia, and but I couldn't really afford to go to another city or state. And so the only thing that they had close to biology at the local university was environmental sciences. And so okay. that was my major there. And I think I would have been fine with that, but I was mostly interested in biological systems and studying specific organisms and not necessarily um, um, a broader environmental impact kind of classes. And so when I moved to the US, I had this open opportunity to study pretty much anything I wanted to do. I started by going to community college though. So I uh, did two years of, of just science prerequisites. I knew I wanted to do biology for sure. And as soon as I transferred to um, the University of California, San Diego, they had several, several biology majors or uh, types of, of, of degrees. And one of them was ecology, behavior, and evolution. And that's the one that was the most interesting to me. I started also, I was working in a lab, um, you know, as an hourly research assistant in a neurobiology lab that was working on trying to understand the um, neural mapping in the brain of mice. And so I was working, helping with uh, studies, looking at the, the, the brain and how it works. And I was just not very thrilled to be in a lab slicing <laughs> uh, mouse brains um, and I just not did not I did not see that <laughs> like neurobiology uh, was not necessarily what I was interested in doing I, I knew I wanted to do something um, outdoors more um, kind of at the whole organism level yeah um, so that's very interesting level because that's when you, you know, you transition from your undergraduate degree into a PhD in neurology and behavior, but you're not yeah. studying it on mice. You're looking right. at, you know, hive behavior and social insects. That's right. So my, when I was an undergrad on top of doing this research um, with the mice in the neurobiology lab, I was working for cre research credit at the B lab there. And that's, oh, that professor okay. had just started that semester that I, I was his first ever student. He's now a very popular and accomplished professor, but I was his first ever wow. undergraduate um, assistant. Who, who was he, that? Uh, James Nye. Okay. And he um, studied 
at Cornell University <laughs> in neurobiology and behavior. So um, he, when I, it was time for me to apply for grad schools, he suggested that one. I applied to a few other programs, and that's the one that I chose to go to because um, I would be able to work on similar questions that I was asking as an undergraduate uh, research assistant with stingless honeybees from Brazil. Okay. So that's how I got started working with bees was helping Dr. Nye with his research on stingless honeybees. And, and so then you go under the uh, the supervision of Dr. Seeley, is that right for your yeah, PhD that's at Cornell right. University? And he studies swarm intelligence. So mm -hmm. I thought this concept was really neat. Can you tell me a little bit about swarm intelligence? Yeah, so if you think of a honeybee col colony, it's considered a super organism because each little bee cannot really survive on her own for more than a few days without being part of the colony itself. And every bee, based on the, her age, has a specific task. And so combined together, the whole superorganism has these emerging properties of the superorganism that are higher level than what they would be for the individuals in the colony. Um, just like you can think of um, uh, um, the cells in your body coming together with emerging properties to create organs and those organs coming together to create the emerging properties of the of the human or the whole body on um, of the whatever animal you're referring to and so honeybees reproduce by swarming or uh, splitting into two units every spring right now it's the prime time for colony level reproduction and so they swarm and these swarms are um, comprised of thousands of individuals from the colony. Somehow, even though it looks very chaotic when the bees are, are undertaking this swarming behavior, looks like it's just a cloud of bees, they have this emerging property of in combined intelligence that tells them exactly how they should operate to first clustering the tree branch, which is what most people find. See, yeah. uh, see or, in their, or in the case you know, of an email I got today on, on their water meter. <laughs> or water meter or yeah. uh, in, inside cavities in their home. But typically it, that whole process of, of uh, swarm intelligence is just the emerging properties of, um, of the organisms within the colony coming together to create this. Um, uh, the superorganism, the, the, the swarm, yeah, the big swarm that almost looks like a big brain uh, with all these um, neurons thinking and firing and do, making decisions, and so it's a it's a decision making machine. It's what amazing. a colony is. And it's amazing seeing how they're trying to, how understanding that can have such implications in technology, looking at, you know, there's like these drones that you see up in the air that they make certain image formations in the air and they're using swarm intelligence. They all That's right. communicate to each other. If there's wind that affects one, they all need to communicate to respond, you know, respond, you know, correspondingly. 
Uh, so it's very neat to think of, you know, it's, it's a bunch of bees and to a lot right. of people it just looks like a chaotic movement of bees, but it has all these crazy uh, and very intricate uh, implications into how they make decisions and how they move like one mind. Like you said. That's right. And they, they, if you look closely, which most people don't really have the time to do, but if you're <laughs> a graduate student doing a PhD, that's kind of what you're stuck doing. Then if you have time and look closely, you pay attention to all the um, behaviors that they're, they're performing, uh, the signals that they're producing, um, multi-modalities that they're using, uh, olfaction, um, vibration, vision, um, uh, vibration, acoustic kind of um, hearing or detection of, of, of sound or vibrations. Um, and all combined allow for the, the, the coming to decisions that are kind of a life or death situations for swarms, for example, of when to move to a new home and where to go together as a, as a, co as a unit. They never really have a split decision where a swarm will split into one, one group will go to one place and the other one says, oh no, uh, I don't, we don't like that one. We're just going to go to the other place we liked. And they never really do that. They all come to an agreement um, into where they're going to end up going as their new home. And, and so a lot of um, computer scientists and engineers tr use honeybee decision-making, especially during house hunting and swarming as a model to understand and see how they could improve the algorithms that they use from the, the intelligence of these animal um, system swarms to, to, as you said, use them in computational analyses and um, it, for drone technology and for um, all kinds of, of other emerging technologies. So that's, yeah, that's pretty amazing. So what, what actually inspired you to get into this in the first place? Well, um, I, again, I was working with, with honeybees and, um, and Tom Seeley, my PhD advisor, had been working on um, Appledore Island, which is a small island in a small archipelago called the Isles of Shoals um, off the uh, coast of New Hampshire and Maine. And he's been working for 30 or 40, now 40 years in these uh, questions about how honeybee swarms decide where to move to found a new nest. Uh, it's not a trivial um, decision. It's actually a very important decision because only uh, one in five swarms um, makes it over winter that survives its first winter. Wow. And so um, selecting a good quality home um, can be a matter of, of life or life death life. for these um, swarms. So he had already explored and he continues, to, I think, to explore questions regarding the house hunting of once the swarm is on the branch, on the tree branch that you find, you know, this time of year, then he looks at what's going on in that swarm cluster 
um, and what behaviors the bees are performing to come to that whole decision-making process of where to move. So I, but the question remained of wh whether or, or how the bees were selecting to leave their nest, leave the cavity that they were occupying to go to that swarm cluster place. So the, the first part of the equation, which would be to leave their house, to embark on the new journey to their new home, because they typically 95% of the time, they never come back hmm. to, to their old home. They just go with the mom, the old queen, yeah. She's the one that leads the about three quarters of the workers in a colony when uh, colony swarming, at least when they're issuing the first swarm. Yeah. Um, and um, and they just go with her. They go, they go with the queen, and they cluster in the tree branch. Then they do these other things that Dr. Seeley had found, and then they finally go to their new home. So I was able to provide the missing link of what happens before they leave the house and or the hive and how they do that to and go that and your, cluster. That was, that was my you. whole, that was my, my PhD dissertation. We published six papers out of that, that looked at the behaviors, the um, um, significance of what we call the swarm fraction. So the colony, why does it split more or less in like one quarter quarter of the workers stay and three quarters leave? Why not 50-50 or 30-70 yeah. instead of 70-30? And there are evolutionary um, optimal um, uh, numbers. Ratios or, yeah. Ratios that benefit both the colonies that, the, the bees that stay behind and the ones that leave that break um, of about roughly one quarter staying and three quarters leaving we showed with a mathematical model that it is the most it's the ratio at which the uh, fitness the reproductive fitness of both units of a colony that split increases their their chances of survival to wow. the next the next year that's pretty uh that's pretty amazing and, and so yeah. it seems like uh, you, you had an opportunity in your undergraduate that kind of inspired you in this field and you just kind of follow those opportunities and has led you kind of where do you are now would you say i mean it's that's right yeah it's yeah. all been kind of i don't know serendipity things just opportunities have kind of appeared and like the saying goes, you just m prepare yourself for those opportunities and, and seize yeah. them. And I've just been incredibly lucky yeah. that I've been uh, able to do all of this stuff. I feel like I should just call this podcast uh, serendipitous entomologists because everyone I've, I've spoken to, it's kind of, that's how they found the path, you know, it's yeah. uh, in their undergraduate degree, they found something they were passionate about and either it was the insects themselves or it was a certain uh, concept like neurobiology and insects right. or the system. And, and For me, all. it's the latter. So it was not like I was a bee lover all my life and I wanted to study bees. I know a few people like that, but for me, it was more the type of questions that were being asked. And, and I just 
then fell in love with the system, with the these subjects, the honeybees. Yeah, and so now, yeah. now, now you run the honeybee lab at Texas A and M, right? Mm-hmm. And y'all do some uh, pretty uh, awesome research for honeybees, whether it be looking at agrochemicals in the wax of beehives, or looking at the types of pollen that honeybees collect, and how important those might be to a paper we're going to look at here soon, which is uh, potential vectoring of viruses. Uh, by other species in and out of hives. Mm-hmm. And what are some other services and or programs that the Honeybee Lab provides? Sure. So I, when people ask what we do, because if you read the types of papers that we publish, there's a wide variety of topics. And I think it, what links them together is that I'm interested in, uh, in understanding the factors that affect the health of honeybees, mm-hmm. both wild and managed uh, honeybee populations. So I'm yet, I'm not really hugely involved with native pollinators at this point um, because it is an apiculture position. And so I've tangentially worked with um, some uh, pollinators, um, non-honeybee pollinator projects, but but they ours focus mostly on on honeybees. And so um, we typically have a staff of maybe 11, 12 people at any given time, including five PhD students, typically. Wow. And um, we do mostly research. I mean, my, my position actually doesn't have any extension component to it, which people are surprised about because I do a lot of extension-related activities. Mm-hmm. Um, for the public because there is such a strong need and yeah. and desire for those programs. And unfortunately, we don't have an apiculture extension um, person at the Texas A&M system. So I, I fill a lot of those voids uh, myself. And then, uh, so it's, you know, mostly research. And I teach two undergraduate courses in honeybee biology and beekeeping. Um, but those are, of course, for enrolled students. So um, I give maybe, I would say, 10 presentations per year to local, state, and national beekeeper organizations, and actually international nowadays. Um, and we offer, well, this year was um, um, for, we had to cancel everything just like, almost everyone else, but uh, we offer a um, queen rearing workshop every May or June, and it's very well attended. Um, We thought that maybe the first uh, big enrollment class five years ago was going to be it because um, uh, so one, one of the main lines of the research that we do that I'm most interested in is the reproductive biology of queens and drones. Okay. And so part and of that being the male drones, male. the male honeybees. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so, um, uh, one thing that you can, as a beekeeper, you can do is produce your own Queens. There is, um, uh, kind of an inexpensive, uh, uh, way of producing Queens. And so we have a queen rearing workshop, but when I first, um, 
talked about wanting to do one of those here in Texas, people thought maybe there wouldn't be interest because of the fact that we have the Africanized honeybee here in okay. Texas, that people would not be interested in rearing queens that would potentially be of Africanized uh, stock. Uh, and um, the, the truth is people are well aware of that fact and still they want to produce local, locally adapted queens. And uh, they're interested in the biology of queens and, and, and the art of queering, which is the name of our um, of our workshop, incidentally. And so the, there's just always going to be, seems like, uh, interest in producing locally adapted um, queens. So that's our kind of most unique program that we offer. It has about 50 people enrolled. And we typically bring a couple of guest speakers and presenters. That uh, So it's an all-day event where we do hands-on for half of the day and then lectures the other half of the day. Nice. Um, but we're also, in the last three years, we are co-organizers of the fall Brazos Valley Beekeeping School. Okay. That is put together by our, our lab and the Brazos Valley Beekeepers Association. And that one fills and, up pretty quick too. Yeah, so um, they used to. We used to just be guest instructors at the event when it started about five, also about five or six years ago, and they outgrew their first space. So then they moved to the Agri Life Center uh, when we started uh, co-organizing uh, it uh, on on the main campus of A and M. And apparently this year. They've outgrown that space, um, or wow. we, I guess. And so now we're going to have to do it uh, in a different location that has more um, occupancy um, allowance so that's, for I mean, the that's classrooms. A few hundred, that's a few hundred. Yeah, people. that's um, including volunteers and instructors. It's about 500 wow. people or so. Um, we also teach at the... So like the usual gigs <laughs> that that I am very happy to uh, help with uh, include the, um, a bee school that's put together by the Austin Area Beekeepers Association uh, okay. in in January. And that's, okay. again, like an all-day bee school. For most of these are have an, a beginner and an intermediate track for, be, for beginner and, and um, intermediate beekeepers. There's also a few uh, advanced commercial beekeeper kind of presentations, but it's mostly beginners and, and uh, intermediate. There's one that is that was canceled th this year, probably for the first time in, I think it's, they've done it for 12 consecutive years. It's the Central Texas Beekeepers Association um, Bee School. Typically okay. in March or April, it's uh, out of Brenham. Okay. And they can, uh, you know, in, in their highest enrollment years, they can have about as, as many as 1,000 people. Wow. That day. So how can, how can people these. find out about some of these programs if they're from those areas? Everything. So, well, a uh, uh, selfish, you know, pitch would be <laughs> go to our Facebook page. Um, Honeybee Lab, 
you just look up uh, Tamu T A M U Honeybee Lab because okay. we we post everything on that site. Everything Perfect. that is coming up in the region, um, nationally, internationally, all the papers we publish. Um, okay or we collaborate on all the awards that are won by our students because they're just tremendous, um, very successful in, in um, earning awards and publishing. And the another one is the, um, which just got canceled and Tom Seeley was going to be the speaker, so hopefully he can oh. be back next year, is the Texas Beekeepers Association Summer Clinic. Okay. Kind of same type of deal, but it's in June. And then the Texas Beekeepers Association annual convention, which is in November. And so that's the umbrella organization for the state. And they have a few more commercial beekeepers involved in, in the leadership roles and, and the management of the organization. And so we're kind of spread. It's, it's a way to spread. We can't really go that far because Texas is huge. We can't really go to every right. county yeah. beekeeper no club. Yeah presentation but we can mm -hmm. go to the regional ones and then yeah. hopefully reach more people that way i think that makes sense you know texas is a very big state yeah. <laughs> so yeah certainly reaching all of it is, is a little impractical yeah so as, as the person who kind of runs the honeybee lab i've got to ask you what you think of these like murder hornets that have made the news well that's an infamous uh common name um mm. just like it was they they called the the Africanized bee the killer bee. Um, <laughs> it's doing a disservice to the to the field of entomology and to the conservation of these species. But um, the Asian giant hornet, um, also known as the murder hornet, um, has given us uh, an opportunity to revive the conversations about the importance of pollinators and honeybees, and so. The uh, Texas A&M um, College of Agricultural and Life Sciences created, immediately responded to people's questions about the Asian giant hornet by creating a task force. I don't know if you heard the news and it just, um, there was a big uh, press release about the task force and where yeah. we have um, constant discussions about how to handle the potential invasion of this Asian uh, hornet if it ever came into Texas um, and what would happen. So the name uh, murder hornet comes from the fact that they, just like other um, wasps and hornets and vespids, they eat other insects that's they're carnivorous so they yeah. murder other insects and, and in the case of the asian honeybee they can um truly go and invade a colony and and in a matter of a couple of hours if if the colony is not well defended and there's too many hornets to deal with they can decapitate and, and kill a colony in a matter of, of hours and then they go on to um eating the tasty larvae and pupae and bringing them to their <laughs> to their young so hen, hence the name murder hornet. but the the thing is in in asia where they're from um they invade 
colonies of the Asian honeybee, Apis serrana, which is a cousin of our Western honeybee, Apis mellifera. So Apis serrana has co-evolved with the giant hornet and has evolved uh, ways to combat their attack. I don't know if you've seen the videos of the They're Asian really, honeybee it's really balling, cool. balling the hornets and basically cooking them through social fever that goes, they, they, they vibrate their muscles and they were able to generate so much heat that they basically cook the hornet inside the bowl, but the temperature is just low enough that they don't cook themselves. Right. So that's an, an, a brilliant strategy for combating this, this invader. The Western honeybee does not have any issues with in its, in its uh, um, normal range in Europe and, um, and some parts of Asia, Western Asia, etc. They don't have hornets to deal with like that, so they haven't evolved any mechanisms uh, or strategies to combat them. That's the problem that when when they invade areas where Apis mellifera lives, they can go in and wreak havoc, havoc in, in those colonies, and the bees don't really have a whole lot of options. I guess, um, you know, if you ever have that opportunity, you know, if they do establish, you know, and that's a big if, uh, mm -hmm. and, and we're able to get some of those Asian honeybees, that'd be a really interesting swarm intelligence difference to study kind of between the Asian honeybee and the European honeybee or the Western honeybee. That's right. That's right. And they, a very few people have studied swarming behavior in other apis bees because just like with almost everything biology related um most of the biodiversity in the world exists in tropical and subtropical regions uh, but most of the resources are in areas of <laughs> higher latitudes where there's not necessarily as much biodiversity so there's not a whole of a lot of university support for people studying all those really cool asian uh, bee species that are similar but not the same as the western honeybees that we look yeah. at so so as a research scientist a graduate student mentor what are some of the skills or life values that you think have been most important in your career um, i would say seizing those opportunities that come um uh every so often and being prepared professionally educationally and uh, emotionally to take them i, I think is um, quite important, not being afraid of failure or, or of, of what might happen in the future. I, for example, starting out a lab and having only limited resources, um, some people could have a strategy of um, being very minimalistic in, or frugal in the way they invest their little resources because they're afraid of what happens in the future if I don't have it run out of funds then i won't have the ability to fund any more research but the my approach was well if i if i make a good investment now the first or one or two years hopefully you know you need a little bit of luck but you also have to have a body of of work that can try to help you get more funding from federal and state agencies um and which has been the case for my lab so 
seizing the opportunities and not being afraid of the unknowns that come in the future is one thing that I would um, that I would bring as 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 a piece of advice. Um, surrounding yourself with um, people that can be um, provide positive feedback is important. Um, the unofficial mentors that you can rely on uh, because if, if you know it and, and, and most people have probably have gone through something similar that graduate school is not a sprint but a marathon and you um, have to go through a lot of ups and downs and um, I don't shouldn't say this a lot but I don't take my job so seriously that I uh, that I that I only live for my work I, I I have a life outside of the of the lab and the office and I think I instill that in my students that they have to work and be very productive um, but also they have a personal life and they have a life outside of the lab and they don't have to be at the lab 12 hours a day to be productive. Um, one that I wish I was better at is time management. Um, mm. uh, I can only advise people that if they can find ways to time to manage their time uh, better, that's a skill for life. I struggle with it. A lot of people do too. Uh, um, so it's it's a for me a, a learning process, and it will continue to be. But that would be one piece of advice is trying to find strategies for managing time. Um, in the case of graduate school, I would suggest, um, which I did when I was a graduate student, is um, two things, to take training in uh, grant writing. Um, did you teach that course? I teach a graduate <laughs> course that's it's quite popular um, mm -hmm. because it it shows how people the whole art of writing grants proposals which is an art and you always get better at it with with time you have to learn how to take the failure of, of rejection because most likely your grant proposals are not going to be funded especially not the first time you submit them so Taking some sort of, if, if there's now official class, at least go online and look for or read a couple of books on grant writing. Um, and either create or join a writing club. Uh, I'm part of one for um, women in agriculture, and, um, and we meet once a week. Uh, and it's a way to build relationships with people outside of the department um, with other female faculty um, but also it kind of makes you write and I would say that I would suggest that students write um, little by little as they go as their projects evolve if they finish the methodology uh, part of an experiment I encourage my students to write that up and not wait until the last minute to write the whole not 
<coughs> to not think that they have to do the whole uh, experiment and be ready now to write the whole manuscript in a matter of a month or two under a lot of pressure. Instead, you could just write a little bit at a time as things progress, if you already know what methods you're gonna use, if you think that you know what uh, body of work um, inspired you to look into those questions so that you can start writing parts of the introduction or the discussion, I think that's um, another piece of advice. Um, and to seek help when needed, to not be afraid to ask for help not be afraid to say I screwed up or I don't know how to do this or I did it wrong because it's also a it's a learning process um, and the sooner you can ask for help I mean I encourage people to work independently but also to recognize or realize hopefully early enough when they're not getting the answer they need so that they can it avoids wasting time and resources unnecessarily. Right. And I think going back to even just uh, writing, you know, I think that's one of the things that uh, I've been working on a lot is trying to make that time to write, whether it be grant writing or manuscript writing, because it does take quite a bit of mental energy. You know, you have mm -hmm. to spend a lot of time reading and once you finally write a whole lot, then you can maybe start formulating some sentences and some paragraphs, and then you step away from it for a week. And then if you want to write again, you have to go dig back into that literature again and get your head back into that space. And so for that reason, it can feel uh, non-productive because you know, you'll spend a lot of time and write a paragraph, whereas I can spend a couple hours and plant you know a couple hundred plants in my greenhouse you know <laughs> so i know the reason you know in terms of time management that is one of those uh, challenging ones and and i think it's nice to hear that encouragement of you know that's one of the things that we all kind of need to work on that's right um i i see a lot of people that that um have writing anxiety and that's mm -hmm. very valid you have to just work through those anxieties just so that you can um, find triggers of that mental block try to overcome them so that they uh, little by little you can get moving and the more you you write the less anxious you become hmm. uh, even if it's just writing a you know reading papers and summarizing them in your own words things like that will help you create the um, the introduction later on. So another piece of advice would be to write anything and everything you need and then to um, uh, edit, edit later. Hmm. Yeah. So that, I, especially if you have a lot of that anxiety so that you can see at least, you know, you can just visually, you prepare yourself, you see some, wording on the piece of paper and that's already giving you a little bit of encouragement if you keep deleting everything you write because you don't <laughs> like the way it looks and it's you're gonna end with a, a blank page and a lot of frustration yeah I've, so. I've heard that strategy before is just write down what's on your mind mm -hmm. and just keep writing and then go back and edit if needed or or you can restructure from there but at least you get that 
on the paper. So it's a lot easier uh, to, right. to uh, get a good start. And so that brings mm-hmm. us, I guess, into a somewhat of a recent, well, actually very recent 2020 uh, publication that, uh, you know, it's Alexandra Payne et al. So uh, mm-hmm. you're, the, you're the senior author on there and mm-hmm. it's entitled The Detection of Honeybee Associated Viruses in Ants. Mm-hmm. So in this study, uh, you're looking at potential intraspecific virus transmissions, the idea that you can have viruses that go between different species, which mm-hmm. in our case of COVID-19 can be quite relevant and interesting as well. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and so er- ants, I guess, are a very common pest uh, in apiaries. And so mm-hmm. the purpose of this was to document these interactions between the ants and the honeybees, mm-hmm. and then also to see if any of the six commonly occurring honeybee-associated virus are present in the ants that you collected near or far from these apiaries. So mm-hmm. can, you, can you tell me a little bit about what are some of these bee viruses? Yeah, sure. So um, honeybees have dozens of viruses um, attacking them. Um, and, and, and the better we get at um, with, with our molecular techniques to find these viruses, the more we find, but it's not that they're getting new ones, it's that we are getting better at detecting them. Um, so one of the uh, the most notorious one is called deformed wing virus. And it's more notorious because, um, well, it's present in most colonies of the Western honeybee. And um, it is one of the few that is symptomatic. So in high, when there's high levels of the virus in a colony or within a bee, then as the name indicates, it deforms the wing of, uh, of the bees um, during development and when they emerge as adults, their wings are crippled and they're kind of um, useless basically. They can't open, uh, straighten out their wings and so they can't fly and they, they die a few days later so they are not productive, they can't really do much within the colony. Um, but there's other uh, important uh, honeybee virus, chronic, chronic bee paralysis virus, Israeli acute bee paralysis virus, uh, sac brood virus, and they occur in um, a, in a potentially fewer levels. Um, and so not all colonies have all of them at once. But the honeybee, the, the biggest problem we have still in apiculture today is the varroa mite. It's a parasitic mm. mite that attacks the, uh, the bees, lives within the honeybee colony. They can't really live outside of the honeybee colony. Um, and they feed on the developing bees and the adults. They feed on the fat bodies of, of the bees. And while they do that, because they have sucking, piercing mouth parts, while they do that, they insert and transmit um, a lot of those viruses. And so they, the number or the level of the viruses um, is much higher when colonies have high varroa levels than when they have low varroa or no varroa at all. Um, and so um, it has been shown that colonies that collapse during uh, the winter uh, they typically seem tend to have higher levels of, of viruses and more viruses, combinations of viruses than those that, that don't 
that survive. So um, it's a big problem um, having these viruses in and so, colonies. You know, if, if some of the bees have the virus, why don't they all just interact with each other to get herd immunity? You know, why don't they all just go out and socialize and rub on each other? <laughs> Does that work? Can they get immune? Can they, can they adapt to these certain viruses? So um, they can, um, to a certain extent, there are some viruses that are less virulent than others. So they kind of evolved to have lower virulence so they can be, they don't make the bees as sick and therefore the bees can still have the infection but still uh, work relatively normally and have the ability to transmit, transmit. the virus to other bees so yeah wow um but what's interesting that we've been looking into it's my, my student alex payne she is a um i have to give her a shout out because this is her project she mm -hmm. envisioned it and she uh received the national science foundation fellowship to do wow. the, this this work um we've learned in doing our our literature search that there's more of these viruses or the same viruses occur not just in honeybees but in other well, first we wanted to see if ants, but now we've come to realize that they they exist in, in, in wasps. And even some my colleagues have told me that they found these them in, in non-insect arthropods. Um, wow. So they are really, we are now calling them honeybee-associated viruses because they're most commonly associated with honeybees, but they're it's not even fair to call them hymenoptera, which is the order in which bees are, that uh, hymenoptera viruses, because they can happen in non-hymenopteran insects. So wow. um, very interesting. The more we dig, the, the less we know about these viruses. But somehow they, at least some of these strains are, are mostly associated with honeybees and they, they're the ones that are causing um, health issues. So Miss Payne, right, she uh, actually collected 77 different ant samples from across Texas. Uh, 57 mm -hmm. were from apiary sites, 20 from non-apiary sites, and actually found uh, some of this, the virus in a number of these ant samples, but didn't necessarily find the replicative genome. So what does yeah. that mean? Why is that important? So um, the specific... Um, ways that these viruses are detected molecularly are kind of difficult to explain but mm -hmm. basically um, there are several tests where you're looking for not just the uh, genetic um, list of um, the genetic code of the virus to see if you can detect it within the 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 ants but you have to look at the um, the opposite sense of the strand that the virus would need to create if it is replicating within the the organism to create more copies of itself gotcha. and so you have to um, have two um, two things going on uh, for the replication to exist the one is to find that the the virus is within the organism mm -hmm. um, but that you also find the replicative 
copy of kind of the opposite um, strand of the virus in order for it to replicate. And so you can find, which is what we found, you can find the, um, the genome, you know, the, 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 the RNA strand um, segments of the viruses within the ants, but not the replicative form, which indicates that they're kind of just passively inside the uh, ant, but it's not replicating within the ant. So we think that what's happening is the ants are eating bee um, products, so any sort of um, food, but mostly probably bee larvae and, and, and uh, so not just honey and nectar, but anything that where the virus is, the yeah. ants are consuming it and they're just having it, they're more like mechanical vectors of the of the viruses yeah. uh, but not really replicating it within their bodies which is I guess good it's a good um, a good um, good thing side of yeah. relief <laughs> that they're not really replicating I should say Alex and she would be better at, at explaining this Alex did a series of uh, negative and positive controls in these mm -hmm. molecular tests that she learned to do along the way. And before she did the last very stringent types of controls, she had actually found that opposite sense strand of the virus in one or a few of her samples indicating that they were actually replicating within the ant. And not and only after she did a couple more controls to test for false positives and false negatives. Did she realize that her um, that the results she had gotten previously were false positives for replication? Wow. And so we suspect that the couple of papers that have reported active replication of the viruses within the ants probably or did not run positives. the collect the correct. Interesting. Yeah, because yeah. in France, I mean, in France, uh, at least yeah. there was a study that that yeah. suggested that the carpenter ant had both the viral and the replicative genome. But I guess if they didn't have that particular extra test, they wouldn't know if they had a false positive. That's right. Oh, wow. And I mean, that we'll just leave it there. But I think after so many testing, so many bees and doing so many controls, we're very confident that the um, results we got are pretty solid are solid and that doesn't seem at least from what it looked like in the methodology used by the, the other people that they used a stringent of um controls so as a mechanical vector does that mean if an ant dies and its carcass is inside a beehive that it could somehow transmit that virus or is it on the cuticle of the ant it's inside them, so they, they have it's to, they, yeah, yeah, they eat them. Um, so potentially you could see the, um, the virus getting transmitted um, if, if the bees come in contact with <laughs> the um, insides of the, the, the inside of the ant. But because bees are um, vegetarian, <laughs> they're not going to likely doing that. But... That brings a good point that that could happen with, let's say, a wasp that is carnivorous and goes and eats the ant. 
then they could potentially get um, some of those variants in, inside, but um, but who knows if they would replicate, potentially not. But still, they are reservoirs, let's say, of these viruses that at any moment could turn on the replication um, machinery inside the 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 reservoir individual and then start uh, replicating. Right. So if there is a, some kind of evolution or adaptation of that virus, uh, right. then that could cause an immediate switch and an immediate, and that's a, right. I mean, completely new problem. some of the work that has shown that these viruses occur in other non apis bees for like bumblebees have shown the, some of the viruses in, in flower parts, wow. for example. And so, when an infected bee comes and is consuming the food and potentially kind of regurgitating a little bit of it and it, with some uh, virus particles on the food, then another bee, say a bumblebee, can come to the same flower and then and pick get, that up. So they would need, you know, face masks, tiny face masks <laughs> to avoid. Or um, sanitize your work surface. Sanitize, after exactly, you're done. or the yeah. tiny. Um, hand sanitizer <laughs> dispenser to before eating something yeah, like that yeah. <laughs> well dr rangel i want to thank you so much for taking your time today to talk to me about bees and your research and uh, really appreciate it thank you so much Irfan. i appreciate it it was fun and um, I'm, I'm really happy that we got to chat today i hope you've enjoyed this episode of talking bugs please leave a review or comments either on youtube or your favorite podcasting platform, or join our Facebook group, Talking Bugs. Leave comments or share. That'd be greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time.